This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast, powered by BetMGM. It's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy. And Ryan, before we get into the hockey talk, I need your help with something. Okay. I need to find out if I'm cool or out of touch. Mm. And I know a lot of people that are on the Gen X millennial borderline, which I am as yep. a 38-year-old man, yep. had these feelings during the Super Bowl. Okay. Watching Dr. Dre and Eminem and Snoop, Kendrick mm. Lamar, 50 Cent Upside Down. Yeah. Was it an amazing halftime show? I was really fired up. My heart was beating fast. But then I realized, and my wife said this, she was like, this is just your bar music from university. I'm like, oh my God, it is. Oh my God. If anyone from uh, London or who went to Western rideout, when the rideout was going strong, that was the soundtrack of the rideout. Mm. This very dingy bar in which you could throw beer bottles and shatter them on the wall and no one cared. (laughs) Anyways, I digress. Am I out of touch? Have I become the equivalent of the boomer audience cheering for Springsteen at the Mm. Super Bowl? Or was that actually a great halftime show? I would say it was a... It was a pretty good halftime show. And I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat. I'm like two years older than you, two or three years older than you. So for me, it's like those were a lot, you know, like with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg in particular, like those were artists that like you grew up with. And then as t- I thought it was kind of neat that there was that lineage where it's like you have them and Mary J. Blige and then, you know, Eminem came along and then 50 Cent came along and then Kendrick Lamar and Anderson Pac kind of like brought it into today. Um, so I, I thought that was nice, you know, in terms of, you know, the set was cool and some of the dancing was cool, but the performers themselves, you know, with the exception of 50 Cent being upside down and immediately regretting it, I might <laughs> add, you could tell it right away. He was like, I cannot rap upside down. Um, you know, I mean, they were just kind of standing there, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was very much, you know, it's, it's it, you know how they ha- there's like dad rock that was like dad rap. Yes, fair with enough. the except, you know, with the exception of like Kendrick and, and Anderson Pack on drums, it was like, yes, this is what rap should be. You know, mm-hmm. you kids don't know rap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's sort of the equivalent. Maybe it's a new era in which now the target audience is going to be that age group. So we're going to get a lot of you know '90s, 2000s artists being like, yeah. featured acts. That and that is kind of it's like it's about time. Yeah, because the boomers are probably too old to be tuning in anymore, or some of them might not be around anymore. Who yeah. knows? Okay. Okay. So I, I can live with that. I think, I think it was it was good, but maybe it was boosted in my mind because I was just a little bit too excited. Yeah. It's just it's nice that it's like it, it was people for our generation for once. Okay. If you want me to get really excited, just bust out the boy bands next year. They're Why? from major nostalgia. Some get the Backstreet Boys up there. Why? I'm going nuts. All the really? lyrics, baby. Man. Yeah. All right. Guilty pleasure. Never got that. Okay. So we're recording this podcast on a Tuesday. We're about, you know, give or take 36 hours away from the gold medal game. The gold medal game we all knew was coming, Canada mm-hmm. versus USA, the women's bracket. So let's break it down. I want to hear your pitch for which team is going to win this game and why. We have two teams that I would argue took different paths to get here. They're both dominant, but Canada obviously more dominant. Mm. But on the other hand, the U.S. had the tougher road, had tough and more competitive games. Maybe that gives them an advantage. So give me your breakdown. Yeah, I, I mean, my big question really is, did Team USA learn enough lessons from the first match where, you know, they did outplay Canada for big stretches? Did they learn enough lessons to get the job done this time? 
And to me, you know, the U.S., they, they were physical and they, you know, they really kind of pinned Canada back for a lot. But Canada got the goaltending, the better goaltending, I should say. And then, you know, Canada has players like Sarah Fillier, who is basically unstoppable right now. And then, you know, Marie-Philippe Poulin is Captain Clutch. Mm-hmm. So it's like I almost expect Poulin to have two goals in the gold medal game. Maybe they're like, you know, Canada's only two goals and one's in overtime. Like, I'm, I just expect it at this point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I look at Team USA, it's kind of on them. And I do think they have the capability to win this gold medal. I, I think if they look at how they played, if they watch that video, they can say, okay, well, we had them there for a while, but we just needed to execute at a higher level, figure out Debian in net. Um, and and really take advantage of power plays. I mean, that was the big thing in game one between these two teams is, you know, Team USA got the penalties that, or they got the power plays they deserved. You know, they worked for those power plays. They made Canada, you know, take those penalties, but they didn't take advantage on the power play. If they even go, you know, two for six in the gold medal game, for example, then they probably win. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of, can you draw those penalties again? And can you take advantage, which obviously they didn't do the first time. Yeah, it's going to be tough. I sort of think of myself as the Larry David meme where he's kind of going like this. And he's he's going back and forth. I I see Mm. reasons you could argue for either team. On one hand, I would say Canada has been far more dominant. The most dominant history, most dominant team in the history of the tournament, men or women, this season. They have the most goals ever through six games in the tournament. 54 goals. That's nine goals per game. You have Brian Jenner has already tied the goals record of 10. You have Sarah Nurse, who's got 16 points, one off the points record, Haley Wickenheiser, which is 17. And so between them and Marie-Philippe Poulain, of course, Sarah Fillier, I think this is the most dangerous offensive team Canada's ever had. Even, even if you look back to previous eras, you know, when you had Megan Agosta or Jen Botterill, mm. uh, I think this group is the most deadly they've ever had. And looking at Sarah Fillier's release, it's almost like if Kendall Coyne Schofield's uh, skating represents the next evolution i think of skating women's hockey i think philly's her shot is the next evolution Mm. right so i think just based on pure deadliness there's an advantage for canada um especially of course with brianna decker being out that's a a big dagger i think for us especially when you're going up against the firepower that canada has but on the other hand is the battle tested factor really important playing two in the elimination rounds two four one games for team usa Obviously, 4-1 doesn't sound close, but compared to all the other games in this tournament, yeah. that's competitive, right? And yeah. everyone talked about how competitive the Czech game was especially. Totally. And you could argue that that has USA maybe playing more disciplined hockey, having to make sure that they are on top of it going into this game. And to me, a very telling stat is the fact that Canada is the most penalized team in the tournament. To me, that suggests a lack of attention to detail, getting a little sloppy in games that were just nowhere near competitive. So you could argue that the U.S. is sharper going in. Uh, I think you could argue that the U.S. is the more physical team. I don't think there's anyone that can really answer what Hillary Knight brings in terms of physicality. So I think you can make your argument for being close. I think if you're looking at goaltender, I think Anne-Renée Debien has been the clear-cut starter, whereas the U.S., it's been, it's been a moving target right yeah. now. I, I believe it's Alex Cavallini now. But I think you have a bit more confidence in the Canadian net. If we're going to make a score prediction, I'm going to say that this Canadian team is just too talented to be to be beaten, I think they're going to have to work for it. I think it's going to be a game with a lot of scares. I think if U.S. scores first 
And that could, I think that could send Canada scrambling and really change the dynamic of the game. Mm. But overall, I'm going to say Canada wins this game 5-3. Mm. I feel just because it's a gold medal game between these two teams, it's going to be 3-2 Canada, maybe 4-2 with an empty netter. Uh, but I think it's going to be pretty tight. And I think early on, the Americans are going to try to dictate the pace. Uh, of course, there's been a lot of discourse uh, based on some hot takery that has been on the interweb in recent weeks about the idea that the women's games are not competitive enough, that it's a farce, that, that it shouldn't be an Olympic sport, on and on and on. And obviously, I think we both agree some of those those reductive takes are a little bit tiresome. At the same time, there's been so much discourse for and against it that it would feel strange not to address it on the mm-hmm. podcast and sort of share our thoughts. So. Where do you set? I'm not even going to ask you, should women's hockey be in the Olympics? I think we both agree it should be. Oh, yeah. But I'll put, I'll evolve the question to something different, maybe a little more constructive, uh, which is would you make any changes to the format of the tournament on the women's side? Hmm. You know, it's interesting because as uh, our producer Stephen Ellis pointed out, they, they grouped sort of the best teams together and then sort of the second tier together. So in the, in the second tier, you actually had some very competitive games. And I, I think that's, that's probably what you want going on, at least for the next couple of years, uh, you know, heading into the next Olympics. But, you know, ultimately, these smaller countries uh, or smaller powers, I guess, is a better way of putting it. You know, ultimately, they're going to have to play against Canada and the USA. And, you know, what we all want is for more competitive games and a little more parity there. So, you know, I'm OK with the Olympic format right now uh, because... You know, you do want that Canada-U.S. guaranteed game in the round robin. And I I think it helps both teams Mm -hmm. to have that matchup. But, you know, all the work that I would like seeing done would actually come before the next Olympics. And that is, you know, to get a lot of these countries, whether it's in Europe or even China, because, you know, the Chinese women are light years ahead of the Chinese men in terms of development, is to see more of a focus on... You know, maybe hot housing your best players and developing them and having them play best on best more, whether that is, you know, little tournaments in Europe or what have you. Like, you can't just wait for the world championship. You need mm-hmm. more action for the whole season. And obviously, you know, funding is a big part of that. You know, funding is a problem for Canada and the U.S. as well. Uh, but it's certainly even bigger for some of these other programs. I think that, you know, that's where the gulf is right now is you need women concentrating on the national team basically full time. Right. And that's a very interesting point. And I wonder too, if you could take it beyond centralization. Um, and because if you want them getting to play the elite players more often, this is sort of a backward idea. It's the reverse of what you'd see in, let's say the CFL, where the CFL has a rule where every team has to have a certain number of Canadians on the roster. Mm. But if we reach the new evolution of PHF, and obviously we're seeing them trending in the right direction with the salaries, let's say we get to this utopia in which all the elite women's players decide to play in this league. We've got a couple of years from now, the proper super league we've always dreamed of. Mm. If you had a rule on each roster that they had to have a certain percentage of international players, non-North American players, mm. then you'd have players from other countries that are spending year-round competing at that higher level. Right. It's hard to say, you know, it would really put to the test the idea that there's this talent discrepancy because if they, if the gap is that big, it could be embarrassing. You could have a player who just mm. really can't compete on the same line as an elite world-class Canadian or American player. Right. But there could be sort of a mentorship there that forces the players from other countries to keep up. I don't know mm. if it would work, but it's something to consider. Overall, though, um, I just think there's a weird revisionist history when it comes to the men's 
tournament, the history of the tournament. Sure. Steven has talked about this a lot, and I had a tweet. I'll just read what I wrote in the tweet in case you didn't see the tweet. But this is the original Hockey Olympics 1924. The Canadian men in the round robin won their games 30-0, 22-0, 33-0. The American men won 19-0, 22-0, 11-0. There was no sense of competition yeah. among the other nations then, but they didn't scrap the event. They let these other nations grow, and they, they gradually got more competitive, and eventually it became what, the, what it is now, right? So... I think you just have to endure those growing pains. It takes time. It takes literally, it takes the process of an entire century. It takes, yeah, it takes decades. And, you know, the men had the benefit of not being in the media spotlight. Like, you, people didn't get the results until like days later back then. And, you know, the biggest injuries were like consumption and wolf bites. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. you know, I mean, the women are growing, they've grown up in a media spotlight that is pretty searing. And, you know, expectations obviously have been a little out of whack considering how long it takes for a sport to mature. That's right. And to me, it's not about taking these non-competitive games out of the equation. It's about maybe adding some more competitive games to the tournament. So mm. if you know pretty much it's a guarantee that you're going to get Canada-USA in the final, and if you know even from a, a revenue standpoint that's going to be your biggest moneymaker for TV ratings, let's make it a best-of-three final. Some people are saying best-of-seven, but I don't know if there's time for that. No. But to me, a best-of-three final, so that's... Mm. maximum three games maybe it's two if it's a sweep sure but you have a final series and i think that would maybe hmm. make it more of a marquee event you get to see more games that are really competitive so if you have them in the same group and they go three games in the final then you get four games of canada usa right. in the tournament so that's another way i think you could look at it um in the news this week we know the stretch run has officially begun in the nhl when one of the contenders makes a big move the calgary yeah. flames acquired tyler Toffoli from the montreal canadians for a 22 for 2022 first round pick which is top 10 protected a fifth round pick as well prospect emil heineman who's getting traded he's in deals every year apparently now and tyler pitlick so we have a few things to get through when breaking down that trade but let's talk about the calgary flames first do you believe this trade sort of vaults them into true elite Stanley Cup contender status, or maybe were they already in that spot in your mind? I mean, I, I think they were right up there to begin with, but you add a proven winner like Toffoli, who just recently has shown that he's still got it in the postseason. Um, yeah, it really vaults them because all of a sudden now, when you play the Flames, who are a very good defensive team and have great goaltending in Markstrom, all of a sudden, you can't just key in on that Gaudreau line. Like, obviously, that's where your attention is. But now you really have to refocus and say, okay, well, let's not forget about Toffoli because, you know, he's going to activate his teammates. He's going to do a lot of goal scoring himself. Um, it makes them a really tough matchup. And, you know, when you have all those other sort of surprising elements like, you know, Mangiapane and, you know, Oliver Shillington has been amazing this year. And I think Rasmus Anderson, you know, his maturity as an NHLer, I think, you know, I would date it back to last year. I thought he was pretty good last year as well. But, you know, and, you know, like, it's like they haven't really missed Giordano at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying these players are the same style or anything, but they've more than made up for his absence in Seattle. So, yeah, I really like the deal for the Flames. And, you know, the, the West is so up in the air right now, especially the Pacific Division. And, you know, Vegas is going to be interesting with Jack Eichel coming into the lineup. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see when Mark Stone returns. But, I mean, if you're the Flames, it's not, that, it's not just that they're a good team. It's that when you look at the playoffs, you've got a coach that has won it all. You've got players that have won it all. You've got a great goaltender. You've got depth. You've got defense. You've got... Burly guys as well. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know what they're missing. Yeah. I think I'm with you, especially because the Pacific Division is just a blender right now. You've had teams that have had their moments, whether mm-hmm. it was Edmonton, Anaheim, LA, but the, the Flames have been the constant. They've been the most consistently strong team in that division, and especially with Vegas's injury problems, which we'll get to later in the show, there's potential, I think, for Calgary to pull away from the pack in that division, get a really nice home ice advantage set up, and you never know. They could they get. I don't know if they're going to catch Colorado, but they could be one of the highest seeds in the West. And I do think they've sort of figured out Daryl Sutter hockey. There were signs of it last year. They're playing elite defensive hockey. Uh, and if you look just like those Kings teams, he sort of remade them in his image. Mm. If, if you look at the five-on-five five numbers, every shot metric, whether it's scoring chances, shots, shot attempts, high danger, Calgary is near the top in every single one of those categories up there with Florida and Toronto. Um, but what they were lacking was shooting percentage, 15th in shooting percentage. So just like those Kings teams with Sutter, they are having a little bit of trouble with finishing abilities. So what do they what do they do? They go and get a finisher, yeah. Tyler Toffoli, a natural goal scorer. He can kill penalties. He's never going to be mistaken for an elite skater, but it's not his game. And of course, there is a connection to Daryl Sutter. He played for Daryl Sutter on the 2014 team, that 70s line. So there's a, probably going to be a shorthand there that will help him transition quickly. And I do think this, this team kind of looks built for the playoffs. They're very well-rounded. Um, you have the superstar, Johnny Gaudreau, has sort of returned to superstar status. He's showing mm-hmm. that there there can be an offensive superstar in a Daryl Sutter system. You have the heavy game from Matthew Kachuk and Blake Coleman. You have the two-way play from Michael Backland and Elias Lindholm. You have that big, heavy, heavy decor, but obviously Shillington is bringing the mobility as well. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe they could use one more impact defenseman. I don't know whether that's going to be Mark Giordano. Because Zadorov and Erica Branson, you know, it's nice to have those heavy guys in the in the bottom pair, but you, yeah. it'd be nice to get someone who can move a little bit better as well, just in case those guys get exposed. But overall, I, I think it's fair to say that I think they were already trending toward being one of the best teams in the West before the trade, mm-hmm. and they've addressed a really important need. If we're looking at the Habs, to me, this sends an intri- intriguing message that Toffoli is the name to go. Um, do you think that Ken Hughes is going scorched earth by making this trade? Well... It's funny because, you know, people on Twitter is like, oh, maybe they're tanking now. It's like, dude, they've been tanking like since they lost the cup final last year. Like, you know, this was not going to be a good team. And, you know, they've lost eight in a row right now. Uh, I, you know, I think this is a matter of Kent Hughes getting assets. And, and this is what you should be doing with this Montreal team is tearing down as much as you can and looking five years from now because I think that's realistically what we're looking Mm -hmm. at if you look at the division they're in and the roster they have they're not going to be competitive for years Mm -hmm. so this is what you want to do you want to build through the next couple of drafts and you know if you're picking really high there's some fantastic talent not only this year but especially next year so um yeah you can call it a tank I mean for me it's just it's a it's the beginning of a proper rebuild that they never did. Right. And to me, it does send a message that there isn't going to be a retool mm-hmm. because maybe there would be some fans believing they could they could sort of make a few tweaks on the fly, get another high draft pick, but you still have guys that can be competitive in the long term for several more years, whether it's Brendan Gallagher or Josh Anderson. You're building around Alexander Romanov. You're building around Nick Suzuki, Cole Caulfield, maybe working with Martin St. Louis. You're going to have maybe Carey Price back healthy next year. If you looked at all those factors, maybe you'd think, well, you know what? It doesn't have to be a full blow it up rebuild. We have so many long-term contracts. We can't move all of them anyways. Mm. But to me, trading Tyler Toffoli says that's not happening because he had two more years left at a very reasonable price, $4.25 million. He's 29 years old. 
To me, if you're still looking to stay competitive in the next couple of years and retool, that's not a player you're trading. Right. By trading Tyler Toffoli, you're making it clear, we give zero Fs right now. We're right. willing to blow this thing up. Yes, you can make a case they have to trade him because he's the easiest guy to trade. His contract's appealing. But I think overall, if you had any intention of staying competitive for a couple of years or trying to bounce back next year, you would never make that trade. Mm. So to me, now the shark, Sharks can start circling the waters with Ken Hughes. And I think anybody's in play. Yeah. Obviously, there are big contracts to worry about, a lot of term that Mark Bergevin left behind. And a player like Carey Price, for instance, we don't know if he's going to be able to play this year, maybe not even ever again. He's got a knee problem. But yeah. to me, if you look at him as an example, come summer, let's say we know he's healthy, that's a name that can be moved now, I think, that other teams might be interested in. Even though it's not like Toffoli is the, the cornerstone of this franchise, it's just based on his contract and age. Yeah. He could have been part of the solution for a few more years. Totally. So moving him, I think, says all bets are off. Uh, to stick with the Habs a little longer here, Martin St. Louis brought in last week as the interim coach with a lot of peewee coaching experience, power play consultant with the Columbus Blue Jackets, end of resume Yeah. in terms of coaching. Obviously, Hall of Fame player. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious for your thoughts. Do you have faith that this experiment will work or will we be talking about this years from now as uh, that time Martin St. Louis came in for half a season and it was just kind of a, a circus and that was it? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a circus. I think that, you know, he was brought in to change the mood in the room and around the, the roster. You know, I mean, we've seen the quotes from the players that, it just it seemed like you know everything had weighed on them. They weren't happy coming to the rink. You bring in a Hall of Famer and Marty St. Louis, uh, you know, an undrafted guy that grinded his way to the NHL and became a superstar. Everybody loves Marty St. Louis, right? So you bring him in as interim coach, and we know they're going to struggle from here on out. At the least, for those guys, I think it's a bit of a break where it's like, let's hang out with this Hall of Famer. Let's learn his lessons and then, you know, we'll reset in the summer. We'll try to, you know, we'll just get our heads in a different position. There's obviously going to be some roster churn. We've already seen it with Toffoli going. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not going to win. You know, like they haven't been any better since he took over. Um, they're basically cannon fodder for other teams, especially Columbus, no pun intended. Um but yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like, it's almost like a vacation, I feel, right. for the Habs. And you know it's a it's a dark season when you're cannon fodder for Columbus and Buffalo. Those are two of the teams that, that Montreal has lost to since yeah. Martin St. Louis took over. Uh, first off, I want to pour one out for Dominique Ducharme. I think he totally. was dropped to do no one situation. This is a coach that had won a Memorial Cup World Junior Championship. He takes a team that finished 18th place to the Stanley Cup. So the writing was on the wall there already. And then after making the final, you lose Carey Price, your starting goaltender. You lose your captain, Shea Weber. You lose your number one shutdown center, Philippe Deneau. Of course, his team was a lot worse. Yeah. It was already a mirage, and then it lost three crucial contributors. Yeah. So it was set up to fail from the start. So I, yeah. I do feel bad, I think, for Dominique Ducharme. I don't think he got uh, sort of a fair trial in this case. Tough. I understand if you know the perception is that the team has quit on the coach. Fair enough. You have to make a change. But I do think he deserves another chance down the road. I totally agree. Yeah. And obviously, St. Louis is kind of a, it's like an old school, I'm going on feel type of hire, right? Because there is no experience on the resume. It, it doesn't mean he's going to be bad. It means we just truly don't know. In terms totally. of the X's and O's, the ability to break down the game, some players 
it translates, they can do it really well. Some players, it doesn't. Sometimes you have coaches who never played the game competitively and they're amazing at breaking down the game. Mm. Sometimes you don't have that, right? So there's no way to really know what it's going to be like, but I can understand the short-term appeal, like you said, the rub-off factor. And there's an obvious, maybe a facile connection to make, but to Cole Caulfield, uh, I believe he did idolize Martin St. Louis growing up because obviously if you're a little guy, that's the perfect player to emulate. <laughs> he was the only one there. Yeah, and Martin St. Louis can just can just bring him over to the leg press machine and say, yep. make your legs double the size like mine. That's right. have, two, have two torsos attached to your torso yeah. and you'll be stronger on the puck. So I can see the connection there. Um, I mean, in, in a qualitative sense, there people seem to believe, people who are sort of more plugged into the team believe that there's a more competitive environment already. So I get it. Um, but in terms of long-term impact, I, I it's hard. It's Maybe it's a cop-out answer, but... I reserve judgment. I, I, I wouldn't okay. be surprised if this is it after this year, or yeah. if it turns out he's a success, we'll see. So we're thinking more about the stretch run, obviously, with Calgary making that trade. It almost mm. sort of announces trading season. Trade deadline is a little more than a month away. Uh, so if you look at the contending teams, which team do you believe, now that Calgary's made its move, is under the hot seat and has the most glaring need to address? And when mm. I say glaring, I mean a team that really does have a chance to do something, yeah. and thus needs to I'm flying I'm shooting spit at you so okay. so excited but who needs to make this move well and i mean some people might think this is a year early but i'm looking at the new york rangers as a team that has so much talent and is getting such a great performance from igor shesterkin that if they can address their team defense they could really be dangerous. You know, if you look at their forwards, obviously very talented, but they don't have a lot of forwards that that rate very well in terms of defensive metrics. Mm-hmm. So if they could even bring in like one or two guys just to up things a little bit, then all of a sudden you say, okay, well, maybe, you know, we really have to take the Rangers seriously because, you know, I mean, goaltending can go very far in the playoffs. We saw it last year with Montreal. But if you have that chance... To bring in a guy. And, you know, I don't know if, I mean, you know, Claude Giroux is sort of the big name out there. And, you know, his defensive metrics in Philly are better than most Rangers forwards at this yeah. point. Um, you know, I don't know if that's enough. Uh, or it's if it's a guy like Ryan Dezingle or Antoine Roussel. Somebody that can just sort of give you those, like, bottom six minutes. Uh, or like a Riley Nash, who we know, you know, when he's out there, nothing happens. Uh, which yeah, yeah. can sometimes be a good yeah. thing. Um, you know, players like that, you know, you do have cap space, but you do have to also find the right fit, and you don't want to push down too many guys because you have so much talent in your top six. Um, yeah, if they can just do maybe a move or two, then I think they could go from what a lot of people are calling a paper tiger mm-hmm. to an actually scary team. Yeah, I like that. I, I had the Rangers on my list, and I wrote down middle six center. So. I think the dream acquisition, as we've said already on the show, would be Thomas Herdle because he can bring the two-way acumen. Totally. He'd, he'd also help him offensively, but he brings the two-way. I, another name I'd be looking at for the Rangers, what about Yanni Gord? If Seattle is willing to sell him off, yeah. you could put Yanni Gord and Barkley Goodrow back together. So you oh, have yeah. two-thirds of the Tampa Bay third line, Tampa Bay North. Tampa Bay North. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting fit. Um, it's funny, a few weeks ago I would have said Edmonton, of course, the need for a goaltender, but this question is about contenders oh sorry but right now i don't know if we can treat edmonton as a top tier contender i apologize but i think it's the the harsh truth of course goaltending is a glaring need but they're i don't think they're in the alpha dog group of contenders anymore to me if there's a team that obviously has a major 
a sense of urgency and is currently rating among the top teams in the league. It's the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, and they need another defenseman for the top four. Justin Hole, I think, has regressed a bit this year. Yeah. Uh, to me, you know, some people would say the Leafs should be pursuing John Klingberg because they need someone on the right side. To me, I think what they need more than mobility is someone who, you know, meets a certain standard of mobility but can play a heavier game. Because mm. we've seen time and again in the playoffs, teams pick on Jake Muzzin. They know that the Leafs have no other player that brings that physicality. So if they take him out of the series and just repeatedly hurt him on the forecheck, wear yeah. him down, the Leafs don't have anyone else that can really answer the bell in terms of someone who plays a lot of minutes. You could say, well, sure. they had Zach Bogosian, but I'm talking about who plays in the top four. So to me, depending on how things shake out with Anaheim, depending on how healthy he is, Josh Manson is the ideal target. He's the right shot. Mm. He can play that heavy game. He can play heavy minutes. And then it wouldn't be all this pressure on Jake Muzzin to be the only guy that can really play that heavy game. I know Rasmus Sandin is surprised, but he's still you know, a work in progress. Totally. So to me, Leafs, right shot, top four, who plays a physical game is a crucial mm. need. So we know Jack Eichel, February 16th, is set to make his Vegas Golden Knights debut. Uh, conveniently, just as Eichel gets announced, Mark Stone magically lands on the LTIR to the surprise of no one. Uh, before we get to the LTIR games, what are your expectations for Jack Eichel this season? I'm, I'm sure we're still confident in his long-term forecast, but what do you think Jack Eichel brings this season? Well, I mean, I expect quite a bit out of Jack Eichel because he is an elite center. And, you know, when we've seen him in an international competition or, or even like at all-star games, when he gets to play with talent, he's incredible. And, you know, in Buffalo, he, he didn't have a lot of guys surrounding him. That was obviously a problem there. But with Vegas, I mean, they have a lot of talent. And... They also have enough depth that you can't just focus on Jack Eichel. There's going to be a couple of different deadly lines there for the Golden Knights. So I would say, you know, the most likely scenario is in his debut, he has like two points. And then there's a bit of an adjustment period where for the next week or two, he's sort of getting his sea legs and, you know, maybe there's not as much production. And then from there, I would expect him to be that sort of, point-a-game guy, maybe even sort of point-and-a-half guy, uh, or let's say point-and-a-quarter, mm -hmm. just to be conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, but he you know, he should be one of the better centers in the NHL. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I kind of predict a similar timeline. Uh, his last game was March 7th, 2021. So he's going to be uh, almost roughly 11 months removed from playing. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think coming off that unprecedented surgery, the disc replacement, it's going to take him a while to get used to the physicality. There, you know, obviously he's practicing and he's not wearing the no contact sweater, but you cannot replicate, you know, having your head down and Jacob Truba boom crushes yeah, you, yeah. right? That's something that no teammate's going to do that to him in practice. Sorry, you got to get you ready for the big game. Yeah. No, no chance. Maybe Braden McNabb. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think Eichel has to be prepared for how it's going to feel the first time he takes a hit. There's going to be, a, you know, anyone who's been through any kind of injury knows what it feels like. Mm. The first time you feel maybe there's some scar tissue, you have that, you, you know, I'm, I've done it before. You know, you, t you tear a knee. You're playing a sport, you fall, you feel that tearing sensation. It freaks you out, and it's actually just your scar tissue kind of just loosening up, right? Mm. So I think it'll take him a while to sort of feel confident playing a contact sport again i agree with you we're going to see a temporary surge an adrenaline-based surge maybe yeah. he scores in his first game then i think there, there will be a reality check as he gets used to just getting his legs back and, and being physical but if you flash forward to april may playoff jack eichel i think will reach the level that vegas is expecting yeah assuming everything goes fine and vegas can survive its injuries um speaking of injuries so we know of course robin laner banged up but the big one is mark stone 
lands on LTIR. Very similar to the Nikita Kucherov situation. Everybody is wondering if Kelly McCrimmon is pulling a Julian Breezeball and is going to just parachute Mark Stone back into the lineup right when the playoffs start. Mm -hmm. I have a different theory, but I want to hear yours first. Um, do you think that these are some shady LTIR games? Do you care? Uh, you know what? I can't I can't speculate as to whether they're shady or not because Mark Stone has had back problems. Uh, and I also do not care. Um, you know, we were kind of joking about this on Twitter the other day. It's like, what, are you cheering for the salary cap? Like, mm -hmm. nobody likes the salary cap except the NHL owners. And even most of the owners don't like it because it can prevent their team from having a better roster. So to me, it's like, yeah, you know what? It's, it's like if you can get away with it, go for it. Because, you know, it's fun to see teams load up on stars and go for it. And when it comes to the playoffs in particular, that's what you want to see. You want to see all the stars. So if Jack Eichel and Mark Stone are on the same team, if Tampa Bay can keep Kucherov on a team with Stamkos and Braden Point and Victor Hedman, that's what I want in the playoffs. I want to see best on best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it'll sort itself out in the summer where if, you know, if teams have to get rid of guys, that's fine. I don't mind that. It's almost like uh, what people say to me in my fantasy leagues all the time when I try to defend a trade that people don't like. They're like, it's okay to be a villain. Just admit it. Stop pretending you're a good guy. I'm like, I'm not. No, it's a fair trade. Right. And I think with Vegas, it's almost like I have no problem with what they're doing because it's okay to have storylines, villains. I think villains can be fun. Totally. Um, but it's more just admitting, come on, we know what we're doing here. It's like, what are the odds that Mark Stone's like, he's lying in bed like, oh, my back, I believe. It will be at its worst on February 16th. Yeah, like, come on, come on. And that's the thing with hockey players that makes this so much harder to delve into is like, they're pretty much always playing hurt. Yes. So it's like if you needed a guy to actually come out, it, like, you're not lying. Right. He, he is yeah, probably any, hurt. At any given time, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, but to me, what I wonder is not necessarily if Kelly McCrimmon is planning the drop stone into the lineup on day one of the playoffs. Mm. Um, to me, what I think might be happening is, A, they need to get Eichel in the lineup. As soon as he's physically ready, they have to get him playing games, getting reps right away, because yeah. they want him to be peaking physically by the playoffs. So I understand the urgency to get him in the lineup. So what I believe might be happening behind closed doors is, if Kelly McCrimmon says to Stone, not, you know, you need to sit out into the playoffs, it's, you need to sit out, you need to heal anyway, sit out until I make a trade. So maybe he's trying to work out, McCrimmon is trying to work out a trade where he sends Riley Smith away or Evgeny Dodonov. And as soon as one of them gets traded, maybe in a few weeks, then Mark Stone's back is suddenly feeling better. So that's my prediction, that it's not going to be waiting to the playoffs because if that happens, it might be so obvious that we're going to see some talk among competition committee, board of governors, there might be some changes coming. If Vegas does it this way, where it's just when a trade happens, right. they might be able to slip by and make the yeah. deal happen. That's my prediction, but we'll see what happens. Uh, we have time for a couple listener questions. The first one, Ranton and Raven, always bringing the heat with good questions, of course. How much of a shot does Johnny Gaudreau have for the Hart Trophy? Do you think he gets more votes than Connor McDavid this year? Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a major chance right now for Johnny Gaudreau. Um, I think already he's shaping up to be a finalist, the way things are trending right now. He leads the NHL in points per 60. So the weird thing is, typically there's this debate with Connor McDavid where it's like, well, he's clearly the best player in the league. And it's, it's not fair to not give him the MVP if he's the best player. But in this case, you can make a case that Johnny Goudreau has been the best player anyways, mm -hmm. leading the league in points per 60, right? Mm -hmm. And I think McDavid, whether it's fair or not, he always has this uphill battle 
A, because he's sharing a team with Leon Dreisaitl. Yeah. And B, because the Oilers are not always going to be you know, a dominant team. This year, they're not necessarily going to make the playoffs. Yeah. So if that's going to happen, he has to, he has to win the scoring title by a mile. Yeah. to get MVP votes. Whereas right now, he's not doing that. He's been great, but many other players have produced at similar levels. So you can make a case to me, if I had to pick the Hart Trophy finalists right the second, I would probably go, you know, Goudreau one of them, maybe Alex Ovechkin the other, and maybe Igor Shosturkin the other. But mm-hmm. um, that's that's where I see it. What about you? Yeah, I, I think Goudreau is there. And, you know, I mean, getting back to, to Edmonton, I mean, Dreisaitl is the number one scorer in the NHL right now. So, you know, with McDavid, he has to battle, you know, is, is he even the most valuable on his own team, as you said? And, you know, this isn't a word that's voted on. And if you if your team doesn't make the playoffs, how valuable really were you? Uh, you know, that's always sort of my benchmark. And as you said, that's hurt McDavid in the past. Um, I'd throw Jonathan Huberto in there as well, because, um, you know, again, when you look at this being something that people are voting on, if you look at how much Huberto has produced versus other members of the Panthers. There's a much bigger gulf between him and the second highest Panther and Gaudreau and the second highest Flame. So I, I think there's there's roots for both of them, um, but certainly something to consider. And you know Huberto gets a lot of offensive starts, uh, zone starts, um, so that's a consideration as well. But you know if you're looking at raw numbers, you're looking at, you know. Guys like Gaudreau, Huberto, you know, Nazem Kadri's still up there, although Miko Rantanen's pretty close. And, you know, we all know if, you know, if Nathan McKinnon had been healthy the whole time, then, you know, he's probably up there as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of ins and outs there, but sort of long story short, yeah, I think Gaudreau's in the conversation for sure. All right. And a great transition to a plug mentioning Jonathan Huberto. Watch out for the next edition of Hockey News. Big feature I've done on Jonathan Huberto, getting to know him his dad as well, and some of his teammates. And you learn a lot more about just how impactful he is at making others around him better. Mm-hmm. So that'll be coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, one more listener question. This is from Kui Chi. Kui Chi wants to know, what is the best book on hockey? I'm going to throw you a fastball down the pipe and give an obvious answer, but it's called this by many people for a reason. The Game by Ken Dryden. It's sort of hockey's equivalent of ball four. And I don't think anyone has ever taken a reader deeper in terms of just every little detail of the day-to-day. Mm. It's very similar to Ball 4 in that regard. And it's cool that it was written. I don't remember what year it came out, but I feel, feel like it was written. Was Dryden still playing when it was written? I can't remember. It but been. it's not like it was written many, many decades later. So yeah, yeah. there's the benefit of perspective and being close to what was happening. Mm. Um, and to me, there's been no hockey book like it ever since. Mm. Yeah, for me, I, you know, I like books that are very kind of specific about the world. So Dave King's book about coaching in Russia was pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. I loved Sean Avery's book uh, because he really, you know, he named names and he told stories and they were fantastic. And, uh, you know, Gary Joyce did a book on scouting that was pretty fun if you're into prospects and the whole scouting process. So those are, those are some of the ones that come to mind for me. I dig it. All right. So we're going to finish off with the rapid fire game. I am the host this week. I think I got a good lineup here, so let's let's get to let's, it, Mr. Kennedy. Let's do it. All right, question one. You are a GM of an NHL team. You're getting close to the trade deadline. Mm. Do you like to take a big swing for a star, or do you like looking for a smaller, cheaper upgrade that could put your team over the top? I go smaller because historically those have been the ones that have paid off. You know, we always say in the office, it's the Michael Hanzoos 
that you want. The the move that people didn't really think about at the time that actually becomes crucial. So I'm going incremental because I believe in my boys. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I lean incremental as well, especially if you're a team that isn't an absolute slam dunk contender. Because is it worth you know sacrificing your future to rent a player that mm. only gets you up to the level of the other elite? If you're truly you know, you're years into a deep round as an elite team, you're trying to get over the top and you haven't been able to break through, then I get it. You know, Tampa Bay trading for Ryan McDonough, something like that. Mm. I can see the logic there. Who is your dream Super Bowl halftime show performer? Mm. Okay, I'm going to keep this in the uh, the realm of realism because it's like if it was my dream, it would be like the nation of Ulysses reforming and like Fugazi playing. But I, that would be a very limited audience, particularly at a football game. So I would say... It would be like Queens of the Stone Age, but featuring Dave Grohl mm. and like some other like sort of special guests. I like that. So you get some like, you know, maybe you get some singers in there that don't typically sing rock songs, uh, but you could get them to do covers. Um, you know, because like when, when Prince did the halftime show, he did some like covers that people didn't expect. I think he did a Foo Fighters song, if I'm not mistaken. I forget. Um, but it's like, I like those like weird combinations. Actually, the thing that I always want to see, I'm just going to throw those, this in the universe. I want to have a female country singer cover Thunderstruck by ACDC. Ooh, nice. I want to hear that. I think it'd be amazing. You could have Banjo instead of Angus Young's lead. Uh, I, I, I'm throwing that out in the universe. I like this mashup idea. Yeah. And I think my performer fits this theme more than she gets credit for. Mm. Miley Cyrus is my pick for the dream performer because... She can obviously meet the more obvious mainstream pop sensibilities that mm -hmm. brings in a large audience. She's used to, you know, big shows, big audience, big pyrotechnics. She's comfortable doing any that kind of stuff. But also, especially during COVID, when she's been doing a lot of really interesting covers, she's shown that she's a actual great singer and performer. And she can actually rock, yeah. which is really fun. It's been fun seeing that side of her. So like tying to your idea of having yeah. someone come in and, and do different kinds of songs. I think Miley's got tremendous range. She can, mm. she can do the, the bubblegum pop stuff. That's how she broke into the biz. She comes from a country background too, of course. But also, she has the rock ability. And if you want, you could all of a sudden get her dad to come in and do Old Town Road, Little Nas X, whatever. Sure. Yeah. Green, Green Day. Of course Day, of it course, is. Of course it is, yeah. And they'll drop some F-bombs and you know do their thing. Okay, what is your most cherished piece of hockey memorabilia? Ooh. You know what? When I was, ironically, maybe I still have it. When I was a little kid, I got a mini stick signed by Wendell Clark. And it was like literally like we were at the hot stove lounge, which is like old Maple Leaf Gardens. And like Wendell Clark was there and I went up to him with the mini stick and he signed it. Like, I know it's real. I was there. So I would say that. I also have a, a couple signed pictures and a stick of an entire Central Red Army team that came over to North America at one point, and they did big signing at Legends of the Game, the old uh, sports card uh, store. Shout out to Alling. Uh, and like Sergey Krivokrasov was on that team. Nikolai Habibulin was the goalie. Cool. Boris Miranov was on the team. So, yeah. Good team. I like those picks. Yeah. Uh, mine would be uh, I was on a trip to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. My mom's, my mom's mom died while we were there. So my mm. mom had to fly home, emergency, to, or her mom was on her deathbed. She had mm. to fly home, so from Boston. She sits down on the flight, 
The man beside her starts talking to her. Oh, hello, I'm Diane Larkin. Hello, my name is Bobby Orr. Oh, hello. And they get talking. <laughs> yeah. And then I guess my mom tells the story of why she's going home. Bobby Orr feels bad. He's like, I, and they get talking about, you know, my mom's son who plays hockey. He says, give me your address. I'm going to send you something. And, you know, I'm sorry for your impending loss. Mm. And sure enough, a couple weeks later in the mail, big autographed picture, color photo of Bobby Orr flying through the air. To Matthew, best of luck, Bobby Orr. So it became nice. sort of my pride and joy. Growing up, Bobby Orr delivering on the promise, pretty cool. There you go. And I met him years later, and I was like, Bobby, and he, he was like trying to give me a photo. I was like, Bobby, I already got this Catwood. from you in color in yeah. my childhood. And I, I refused his black and white photo. Okay, we've been dancing around this topic, I feel like, for a long time. It's time to settle it. All right. What chain makes the best burger, period? What chain best burger, period? You know, it's such a personal taste thing. It's like, I, I personally, I like Harvey's. I know you hate it. I know you have very strong feelings, but it's like, if I had my choice right now, I would go Harvey's or Hero Burger. I like Hero as well. Okay. So, and then there's also Burger's Priest, which is a bit smaller of a chain, obviously. But Burger's Priest is pretty solid as well. Yeah, Stephen disagrees, but it's it's so personal. But that's yes, me. I sure. know you totally disagree. What's funny? Well, even my daughter, who's five now, she knows. Like we drove past the Harvey's on the road, and she's like, "Dad, it's Harvey's. You hate it." <laughs> and she knows. Uh, for me, it's Burgers Priest in terms of just pure taste. Yeah. Obviously, it's very expensive. It's not something you reach for every time. Right. But especially if you know about the secret menu and how to customize it. Once you get your customization down and, mm. and get the burger that works for you, it can be tremendous. Mm. So I'm going to say Burger Priest. Nice. Uh, which. So in honor of a uh, THN staffer, Nick Emanuele, who's a Cincinnati Bengals fan, is feeling very down right now. Yeah. What sports defeat of a pro team crushed you more than any other defeat in your life? Ooh. That's a good question. Because it's funny, because when I was a kid, I cheered for the Leafs, but it was the 80s. So there was never any expectation. You know what? I would say when the Leafs lost to the Flyers, like the Jeremy Roenick Flyers, I remember I was hanging out with college friends who don't care about sports. And even they were like, oh, that's rough. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll go with that. Okay. I'm going to say... Uh the Peter Forsberg postage stamp goal in '94 Olympics. Oh, yeah. I remember I, I was that one made me cry. Like I was I was lying on the ground crying. Dang. I, was like, I think I was nine, nine or ten. Um, in adult life, it was the 2020 NFC Championship. I'm a Packers fan, and mm. when when Matt Lafleur did not give Aaron Rodgers the ball when they needed to score, they went for a field goal instead. Mm. That drove me crazy. It still haunts me. Um, okay, last question. John Wick is fighting Jason Bourne. Mm. Who wins? John Wick all the way. Yeah, because he's always motivated. Like Jason Bourne, basically, you know, he does. He has trouble remembering his past, if I if I recall correctly. But John Wick is just an unstoppable killing machine, and clearly, Jason. If they're fighting, Jason Bourne did something to like a dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna say Jason Bourne. I I agree that there's more motion for John Wick, and Jason, I think John Wick has more killer instinct. Mm. But John Wick takes a lot more damage. Mm. He he, really, he gets stabbed. He, he just he takes a punishment, and I think that Bourne would be able to finish him off. Bourne is younger as well. If, in terms of if we're judging them based on the age when gotcha. the age of their character, like time the machine, movie, yeah, when the yeah. movie comes out. So like Jason Bourne is in his 30s in most of the movies, whereas John Wick is, I think, is supposed to be, or Keanu Reeves in his 50s. Maybe John Wick's supposed to be in 40s, his 40s. Man. Yeah. So I think they're both unstoppable killing machines. Mm. I think Wick is willing to fight a lot dirtier. Totally. But I think Bourne is more efficient, mm. and I think 
Wick just take he just takes more damage. He gets mm. he gets hurt a lot. Okay. So I think I think Bourne would be able to exploit that. Okay. That's the end of the rapid fire game. That is the end of this episode. Thank you everybody for watching and thank you for listening. Yeah.